you're anything like me, there's a number of songs that you really enjoy, that you kind of focus in on. But I just really want to set your mind at ease because I'm not going to try and sing any of them to you right now. But what I want to do is I want to read just a few of the lyrics of a song that we're going to sing immediately after the sermon. And it's a song that just resonates with the passage that we're going to talk about today, a song that just dovetails in with all that we've done through this whole service, because we've been moving in a direction. So let me read some of the words to you. It's a song we used to sing here a few years ago. We haven't sung it for a little while, but it's really one of my favorite songs, and it's called Peacemaker. And the words go like this, peacemaker, fear taker, soul soother, storm smoother, light shiner, lost finder, cloud lifter, deliverer, heart toucher, truth lover. Then the second verse, mind clearer, sigh here, hand holder, consoler, wound binder, tear dryer, strength giver, provider, heart healer, kind father. Who other could be my savior, peacemaker to me? And then some of the chorus goes, let your peace rule in my heart. Let your kindness fill my thoughts. Let your strength secure my soul. Let your peace take hold in my heart. You know, there's loss all around us. By way of example, just in the last few days in the life of our church, four families in our church have lost loved ones. And if there's one thing I've learned in 30 years as a pastor, is that everyone in this room has a story. And for some of us, things are on simmer right now, and for some of us, it's on high in terms of how bright and strong and warm the flame is underneath whatever it is that we're grappling with. And many of you have had tears, perhaps very recently, maybe not for a long time, because of lost relationships and lost opportunities and lost lives and lost innocence and lost livelihood and lost dreams. And so I just want to talk to you from God's Word for a few minutes about how God responds to that. And it's part of this little series we're doing called Summer in the Psalms. And so if you have your Bible, turn with me to the psalm, Psalm chapter 6. And Psalms is found right in the middle of your Bible. If you open it in the middle, you'll probably be in Psalms. Just look around a little bit. Psalms chapter 6. And as I read this psalm, I remind you that this is the word of the Lord. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. Or discipline me in your wrath. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am faint. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in anguish. How long, O Lord? How long? Turn, O Lord, and deliver me. Save me 
because of your unfailing love. No one remembers you when he is dead. No, who praises you from the grave? I am worn out from groaning. All night long, I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Away from me, all you who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and dismayed. They will turn back in sudden disgrace. When's the last time you cried? And I mean really cried. There's been a few times in my life, and to be honest with you, if I could be vulnerable with you right now, there's been a lot of tears in our home in the last month. I know that for some people it's very difficult to cry because of the personality they have, and and they choose to express grief or pain or sorrow or whatever the emotion is in different ways, and of course that's totally legitimate. The Bible, as you will always hear us tell us, say, the Bible always says that God wants us to be who he created us to be. And he's gifted us in certain ways and given us types of personalities. And so the invitation from Scripture is not to try to be something you're not, but to be who God created you to be. Let me say, though, a little caveat here, that if the only reason we don't cry is because of our pride because we don't want to be vulnerable, we don't want to appear in our mind weak, that's not good. Just like on the other hand, if the only reason we are crying is to get attention and to manipulate people or whatever, that's not good either. But having said all of that, we see these biblical characters, including David, the one who wrote this psalm, going through times in their life where they just have gut-wrenching tears. Gut-wrenching tears. Immobilizing tears, almost. And I'm going to suggest to you that in many ways, I believe tears are a gift from God. Everything from as simple as washing a piece of debris out of your eye that's irritating your eye. When you're, when you're cutting onions and we start to tear up from the fumes and we're thinking to ourselves, it's so annoying that I'm starting to tear up here, but actually this is a protective thing from God. And he causes, he created us so that our eyes would tear up to protect us from the harsh fumes that the onion is giving off. And sometimes we cry because we're happy and that's just the way it comes out. Sometimes we cry obviously because of sorrow over hard things in life. Now, if we indulge those tears, they can turn into sort of self-pity or people just looking for attention. Another danger is to sort of deliberately kind of close those off and we become hardened in life. And so I'm, as I read this psalm from David, it's just an invitation to us. It's, it's, It's him being deeply vulnerable with us It's just an invitation to own our stuff, to be real in life, rather than trying to pretend we're something we're not. Now, 
it's uncertain what the background of this psalm is. We're not totally sure of the setting, at what point in David's life he's referring to when he references the things he references. But we know these things. We know, if you know anything about David's life, you know that he went... Uh, through numbers of periods in his life of incredible difficulties. And I, and I would emphasize long periods, sometimes multiple years of people trying to kill him and, and things of that nature. And sometimes these things came in his life as a result of wrong choices he made that were either deliberately undertaken by him or, or perhaps even somewhat innocently undertaken by him. Sometimes it was because these difficult things were because he did the right thing. He did the righteous thing, and he still suffered. And in case you didn't know that, that can happen in life. Sometimes we can choose the holy thing, we can choose the righteous thing, and we suffer simply for being a follower of Jesus. That's entirely normal. But there were many times in David's life when he was sick or when his enemies were ganging up on him, and I'm guessing, but this is just a guess, I'm guessing that the, the sort of the genesis of this psalm is one of those eras in his life when people were out to get him. And we know for sure that it points these, these problems in his life were overwhelming. And, and just listen to how he's expressing it in verse 6. I am worn out from all this. I'm worn out from groaning. He's physically weak from it. All night long, He's got insomnia. All night long, I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak. His eyes are so red with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Away from me, all you who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. And so, like I said, he's downcast. He's probably suffering from insomnia. And it's because these people are arrayed against him. As the psalm opens, it's a little bit, it's a little vague. He, he, he seems to be thinking that God is angry with him. And we see this in verses 1 and 2. And, you know, he references it quite clearly. And, of course, this is referenced numerous times in Scripture. And it's really unpopular to talk about an angry God in our culture. But the fact of the matter is, and David understands this, as much as God loves us, as much as, as we sang earlier, as much as Jesus died for us and conquered sin and death on the cross so we could have a relationship with God, as much as that's true, it's equally true that God hates sin. It's equally true not only that he's this loving, that he's this holy as we've sang about numerous times this morning, that he's a just God. When he sees injustice, when he sees sin, this makes him angry. And he will not tolerate it. And so there's, there's a little bit of confusion, at least for me, as I'm reading through this psalm initially, because David is concerned, but the thing about it is, he doesn't mention anything specific. There's other psalms that David writes, in Psalms 32 and 51, by way of example, where he gets very specific, and he knows why God is angry with him, because of the sins of Bathsheba and Uriah. But here, there's no specific reference to anything. And so, for whatever reason, God has not put his finger at this moment 
on the issue, if there even is an issue, maybe David's just a little confused, if there even is an issue, he hasn't put a finger on it specifically in David's life. So there may be unconfessed sin in David's life, and that might have been the reason for these difficult times. Sin that he has not sincerely repented of and dealt with. But there may be another reason, several other reasons. Could be that he's going through these difficult times, not because there's any sin in his life, but simply because God is allowing David to learn some lessons in tough times that he would never learn apart from those times. God, I want to, God says, I want to form something in you, David, that um, just doesn't come when life is kind of rolling along as we think it should. So let me just ask you, are you going through a dark time in your life right now? It could be because of unconfessed sin in your life. It could be that God has been specifically pointing something out to you, like he did to David in Psalm 32 and 51. And it would, if that's the case, it's completely appropriate to pray and say, Lord, is there something sinful that I have done that's at the root of this, that I've not repented of, that I've not asked for your forgiveness and your cleansing of, and asked you to help me turn away from it? And God, would you be so, would you be so generous with me and loving with me to reveal to me what that specific thing is so that I can repent, so that I can be cleansed, so that your grace can be applied and I can move away from this. And you see, I believe with all my heart that when we pray this sincerely, if there's a deal, God will point it out. The thing I always say, and I've said this many times over the years that I've been here, it's never going to be vague. It will be specific. You see, understand the orientation of God and the evil one, okay? The orientation of God in your life is he wants what's best for you. He wants a healthy relationship with you, an unhindered, barrier-free relationship with you that sees Christ being formed in you, you becoming more like Jesus. And so his goal, when he allows the Spirit of God to convict us and help us feel guilty, which is a good thing. His goal is he will specifically point something out so that it can be specifically dealt with so that you have victory, so you're no longer in bondage, so you're no longer downcast, so you can proceed in life as God would want it you to proceed. The evil one's orientation is dramatically different. It's In fact, it's the exact opposite. He wants you bound up. He wants you hindered. He wants you uh, dismayed. He wants you defeated. And so it will just be a general sense of, Scott, you're a, you're really a lousy person. You're such a failure. You haven't got what it takes. Because what can you do about that? There's nothing. Because his orientation is he wants the worst for you. So if we ask God specifically, is there something, I believe the Spirit of God will show us and remind us of whatever the issue is. Oh yeah, I I think I practically had forgotten about that. But he shows us that was something I never dealt with, never something, something I never did restitution for, whatever the case may be. 
Now, God, would you help me be forgiven? Would you cleanse me and would you help me to repent and move forward? If he shows you nothing, just set that aside for then. It may have, on the other hand, it may have nothing to do with sin. And it may absolutely nothing to do with sin as to why you're in the situation you're in. It may be simply that God is saying, I want, as I said earlier, I want you to learn to rely on me in a way that you perhaps never have and that will only um, come sort of in the cauldron of difficult circumstances. It may be, on the other hand, um, as it talks about in places in the Bible, like John 9, for, for example, it might be so that everybody will, who are, is watching your life and you see how God helps you move through whatever the issues are, they'll stop and they'll say, I'm going to praise God because God took that person on a journey, couldn't have done on his own, his or her own. And I'm going to praise God who was the deliverer. May not have removed the bad or difficult circumstances, but this person triumphed. This person had victory even in the midst of difficult stuff. And I am going to praise God. I'm going to learn from that person. I'm going to praise God. And I'm going to be, be able to trust God when I go through some tough stuff too. So I'm not totally sure why he's going through this stuff in Psalm 6. But I just know that he is. And there's tears, and there's insomnia, and there's frustration, and there's physical decay. His eyes are hurting him, all this stuff. And it appears on the surface that God is silent. Even though David knows in his heart of hearts that God is constantly at work in the background. That God never leaves us or forsakes us. If you're hurting here today, do not believe the lie that God is too busy for you. That's a lie from the pit. Do not believe the lie that God has given up on you. That is a lie from the pit. Do not believe the lie that God is preoccupied or just doesn't care about you. He cares more about you than you care about yourself. So what does David do? And what is David inviting us to do? Well, first of all, he just prays and he boldly asks in faith for God's mercy, for God's healing, for God's grace to sustain him. Let's just read it. There's four verses. Verse two, first of all, he says, how long, O men, will you turn my oh, wrong psalm? I probably should read the right psalm, right? I got kind of caught up there. Psalm six. Yeah, that's right. Psalm six, verse two. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am faint. Oh, Lord, heal me, for my bones are in agony. And then verse 4, turn, O Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. And then verse 8 and 9, away from me, all you who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. Now, those words from David and this psalm in its totality, they're really quite contrary <laughs> to the popular idea that many people have. And the idea that many people have goes along these lines. And it's going to sound very familiar to you. God helps those who help themselves. 
God helps those who help themselves. And I'm guessing that any number of us that are sitting here this morning are thinking to themselves, well, that's in the Bible, right? It's there in the back somewhere. Actually written by Ben Franklin. What, is that? what does the Bible actually say about this stuff? The Bible says that God helps those who are fatherless. God helps those who trust him. God helps those who are poor and needy. God helps those who are weak in their faith. God who helps those who call on him. God helps those who seek his face. And so, with your permission, I'm just going to rephrase Ben Franklin as much as I appreciate some of the things Ben Franklin did. Let me just rephrase it this way. God helps those who can't help themselves. God helps those who can't help themselves. And when we read this psalm, we see David who... If, and if you don't know anything about David, let me just tell you, David is one of the most mission-capable human beings there's ever been. King David. King David, if you study his life, we know that he was a strong individual, incredibly brave. When he was a young teenager, the entire army of Israel is quaking in their boots about afraid to go and fight Goliath, who steps forward? This teenage boy. He had courage. He was strong. If you read him, he is incredibly creative. He is gifted musically. Uh, King Saul has him come into the court, sort of as the court musician. He's gifted musically. He's very intelligent. He is a prolific author. He is a leader of leaders for 40 years. He's a faith-filled individual. He's incredibly well-rounded. And yet in this psalm, there is a recognition from him. There is nothing that I can generate to spring myself out of these issues. Think about that. In fact, what he's saying in this psalm is he's saying, I have to, and in fact, I willingly choose to rely on the one, the only one who can help me. And so the first big idea here is so simple, but we are very reticent to do this. Admit this stuff. Admit this stuff. That God helps those who can't help themselves. Very hard for us to admit that, because we're very proud. Now, what I am not saying, and what David is not saying, I'm not saying give up. I'm not saying become passive. I'm not saying stop trying. God is saying, and this is always the message of Scripture, we are called to couple our very best efforts with an admission that I cannot do this on my own, that I need God's help. That we would be filled with his spirit and that he would help us. But we're, again, very hesitant to admit this. But notice how just very forthright David is with God. Two times in verse 3, he respectfully asks the question, how long? How long? You know, God, to be honest with you, this seems like this is going on forever and it's never going to end. 
And David is honest with God in a respectful way. In fact, 65 times in Scripture, this question or a question like this is asked, how long? 18 of those 65 times, the writer says, are you ever going to go th- come through here, God? I can't take it anymore. And, and the thing is, you can read it in this psalm and many of the other psalms. There's a number of psalms that are laments. Um, God welcomes this. And the reason I know this is because when I read the psalm, and you've heard me say this before, I'm going to say it again, God doesn't rebuke him for saying these things. God doesn't rebuke him for asking these things. But what David did do, and I repeat this because this is very important, he he was respectfully honest with God. Didn't hold back, but he was respectfully honest with God. And so if you're suffering right now, if the Bunsen burner in your life is not on simmer, but it's on medium or higher or whatever the case may be, I am not offering you some magic cure. I'm not ad- offering you some magic beans. I'm not offering you a little lamp that you're going to rub. I'm not saying that we can have anything we want. I'm not saying even necessarily that the circumstances you're in are going to be immediately or perhaps even ever relieved. I don't know. But I invite you to invite the God of the universe into your personal situation. This is what David is saying. He's saying, be honest with God. Ask for his mercy. Ask for his healing. Ask for his grace. Ask, it says in verse 4, for his unfailing love. And then drink it in. Be vulnerable with God. Be vulnerable with the key people he's brought into your life. He does that in verses 6 and 7. And I'm just going to say this. He's more mission capable than anyone in this room. Certainly way more than me. And yet he was deeply vulnerable with God. You know, our society... (laughs) Tears, not always, but tears are often considered as a sign that something is wrong with us. A sign of weakness. Some people think, oh, that person must be depressed or unhappy or frustrated or looking for attention or just trying to get their own way. And when we see someone crying, you know, we often will avoid them or think, I wish somebody would just medicate that person. And I understand that there's times when medication is really called for and really helps. It's a good thing, stuff like that. But, but that sometimes is this, we're going to avoid them or medicate them. And I remember what, years ago, I was in this psychology class. It was very interesting. This huge debating class. I don't remember how long we took it. We, 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 we argued about this. But the class was almost like divided in half. And the issue was this. You're counseling someone. And they begin to sob and weep. And here was the question. Should you walk across the room and pick up a box of Kleenex and give it to them or not? And half the class said, you better not do that. Because by doing that, you're subtly communicating to them that you're uncomfortable with them crying. You want to avoid that. And would you please stop crying? Stop being vulnerable with me. The other half of the class sort of said, 
if I don't offer them the Kleenex, I'm going to come across as cold and uncaring. So there's this big debate, and we didn't know what, you know, what to do. Now, I, I'm, I'm a pretty simple guy, so my approach was this. Before they come into the room, I get the Kleenex box, and I set it right beside them, and let them pick it up if they want one. We're often uncomfortable with tears. Can I suggest something? What if, what if tears, rather than suggesting something is wrong, what if tears are actually a sign that something's quite right? What if tears are a suggestion that something is quite right? I've told this story before, but many years ago. But it's a good story. Can I tell it again? It's the story of Sima and Millie Filatov. Both people that were part of this church when I came here many years ago. Sima was the mom. And Sima was in a level four nursing facility here in Lethbridge. Millie was her daughter. Millie was retired from her government job. And Sima, um, once in a while, not real often, but once in a while, I would go and visit Sima and Millie would be there. And uh, Sima, the mom, had had a series of strokes and was unable to communicate and talk in the traditional sense that she couldn't speak words that certainly I could understand. But she would try to express herself, and she would make noises and things like that, and she would gesture. Now, Millie, the daughter, would go and see her mom basically every day. And when I was there, I would visit with them for a bit, and I would pray with them, and once in a while, I'd open my eyes while I was praying, and Seema was laying on this hospital bed in front of me. As I was praying, she would have her arms raised. She's laying on her back, her arms raised like this, and there'd be tears streaming down her face, and she'd be kind of making little noises. And after I was done praying, and I saw this a couple of times, whatever it was, uh, I left the room with Millie, and I said to her, because Millie always knew what her mom wanted, just because she'd spent so much time with her. I said, what, what's your mom saying as I'm praying? And she said, oh, she's talking about heaven. She's looking forward to heaven. And she's crying tears of anticipation. There's something very right about tears of anticipation. It also says in the book of Romans chapter 12 that we should weep with those who weep. It actually says rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. You know, when someone is hurting, we feel pressure to have the exact right words. And we think, if, you know, I'm under pressure and if I don't have the right words, I won't know what to say. I might be embarrassed. So I'm going to just avoid this person. We see more and more evidence of this in the culture. You don't have to have the perfect words. Sometimes the most powerful thing you can do is just be present with that person and, and just mourn with them or rejoice with them as the case may be. Our presence can be a powerful act of ministry. I will often pray before I go to see someone, and I pray this with lots of people, Lord, help me to know what to say, and equally important, help me to know what not to say. And so I know I find, you're finding this hard to believe, but sometimes I don't have a lot to say. 
There's something good about tears there. You can, of course, weep over loss, as David is doing. We see this in the life of Jesus. In John chapter 11, Jesus wept when his friend Lazarus died. In the book of Luke, Jesus is looking over the city of Jerusalem, and he supernaturally offers a prophetic word because he knows what's going to happen in 70 AD. The Romans are going to come and, and sack the city and tear down all the stones of the temple. And he cries over the fate of Jerusalem. There's weeping over sorrow for my sin. If you read in Psalm 32 and 51, David, he weeps over his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. And when we are confronted with the enormity and seriousness of our sin, many people are moved to tears. First tears of guilt, and then tears of joy. When God's grace is applied, and we're forgiven, and we're released in a way that nothing else in life can release us, only by the grace of Jesus. We can weep, we can worship and weep as we worship, and we're grateful before our standing, with our standing before God. We see this in Luke chapter 7. The woman, it says, she stood behind Jesus at his feet, weeping. And she began to wet his feet with her tears. And then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. And this lady worships and is grateful for the forgiveness and cleansing that Jesus offers. We can weep for the spiritual lostness of people. You know, some people will say, well, I'm not much of a crier, Scott. I'm not telling you to manufacture tears. I'm not telling you to be someone uh, that you're not. I am saying it's not so much the weeping eye that God is looking for and respects as the broken heart. But I will also say this. It's really okay for your emotions to join you in prayer. Some of us would pray better if our emotions joined them. And as the song we're about to sing says, God, let your peace rule in my heart. Let your kindness fill my thoughts. Let your strength secure my soul. Let your peace take hold in my heart.